Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 25. I want to warn you ahead of time, uh, we're going to be covering a lot of ground today, so there's going to be a lot of summarizing, Uh, but uh, don't worry, we're not going to go for two hours, um, because I don't want to hear myself talk for that long either, Uh, but... I would recommend you uh, later this week to go through and read the text on your own uh, just because we are going to move fast through some of the parts. Uh, One of the challenges of preaching chapter by chapter is sometimes these stories seem very similar and it can be challenging to find, okay, what's the special part of this to help us understand why this was included in Scripture so uh, we're going to see some stories that maybe you've never read before or you didn't remember the last time you read it. So we're going to be in Acts 25 and 26. And as we begin there, I want to tell you a story of how I almost became a high school math teacher. When I was uh, graduating high school, uh, I got accepted to college and I was going to Uh, go to college and become a high school history and social studies teacher. And as a part of my graduation, uh, they made us, they had a mandatory meeting with our guidance counselor. And I was a decent student. I, I had an older sister who had gone to college before me, so it was more the going through the motions of this process than actually needing some guidance at this point. Uh, So I went into the meeting pretty much saying, okay, here's what I've already done. I've already filled out my financial aid. I've already selected my major and my college. I've already got this plan and just expecting him to sort of rubber stamp me and move along. So as I was telling him about my plan to go into history and social studies education, he said to me this, if you want to be a teacher and you want to make real money, you should teach math or computers. Now, in one sense, it was good advice. Generally speaking, at least at the time, I don't know what it is now, that there were fewer candidates for such teaching jobs, and often there was better pay to be had. And I did well enough in math that I could have done that. Um, So it really wasn't a problem of competency. But I didn't take his advice really for two reasons. Number one, and this was probably the most available to me at the time, how much money I made was not the primary reason that I made that decision. I remember walking out of that meeting as an 18-year-old and saying, well, but that's not really the only reason that I'm choosing this, is how much money I can make. And secondly, and this wasn't available to me really at the time, but looking back through my life, I see the different plan that God had for my life than was suggested by my guidance counselor. And that I wouldn't have had the opportunities to minister at that time and in those places and then have future ministry even out here if I had followed his advice. So in one sense, I feel I made the right, wrong decision. That maybe, yes, I would have made more money as a math or computers teacher, but 
looking back especially, I can see how God used that decision to bring me to where I am today. And it's that idea of the right-wrong decision that ties into our text today. I want to cheat a little bit by telling you the end of the story to help us understand the story as we go through it. Today in our story, Paul is going to appeal his case to Caesar. This was a legal right that Paul had as a Roman citizen, and it was sort of your last-ditch effort. Again, think of Caesar as the Roman Empire's supreme court. There's nothing past it, but in that system, Paul had the right to appeal to Caesar. But as we'll see in one sense, that was the wrong decision. Let me read to you from the end of Acts 26, verse 32. And Agrippa, we'll meet him later, said to Festus, we'll meet him later. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So as we go through this text, I want you to know that in one sense, Paul made the wrong decision in appealing to Caesar because if he hadn't done it, the people who were running his court trial said he would have had his freedom. But what I want to show you in God's sovereignty is that Paul definitely made the right decision in appealing to Caesar. That this right-wrong decision saved Paul's life, gave him a present opportunity for ministry and sharing the gospel, but also provided the means by which he would do future ministry for Jesus. So let's look at beginning in chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. And again, I'm going to do some summary here because we're sort of going over similar parts of the story as we had over the last couple weeks. So we had Felix the governor, and he's done, and so now we have a guy named Festus. He is the new governor, and as a part of his new position, we read in verse 1 that he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea to greet the Jewish leaders. And in verses 2 to 3, we learn that the Jewish leaders, quote, laid out their case against Paul, asking that Festus summon Paul to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So remember, we saw this before, and apparently the plan was still in place of trying to assassinate Paul. And Festus, in verses 4 and 5, tells the Jewish leaders he's going back to Caesarea, and they can bring charges against Paul there. And in verse 6, we read that Festus brings Paul into his courtroom, as it were, and we see another case of Paul standing before an official pleading his innocence. At that point, the Jews come, the Jewish leaders come, and in verse 7 we read, they stood around Paul, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul himself, in verse 8, claims his innocence. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Now Festus, the other politician, though probably unaware of the current, unassassination, uh, current assassination plot, 
says this in verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And that's where we get, let me read all of verses 10 to 12 together. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, who had when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul communicates a respect for the authority of Festus and his court and understands he's under their authority. And he, again, stands firm on his claim of innocence. And we see this in his willingness to submit to the justice of the court. Again, verse 11, if I... If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. I want you to appreciate the complexity of Paul's interactions with Festus. He can both humbly submit himself to the justice of that court, but he can also boldly stand on his innocence. Again, we see both a boldness and a humility that Paul lives his life, especially when he interacts with Roman officials and governing authority over him. And we must emulate this behavior to the governing authorities in our lives, that we are not afraid to boldly speak the truth, but we also humbly submit to them in the the honor that they deserve. But as I said before, the most important action happens here. Paul appeals to Caesar. Now we don't know when Paul made this decision if he knew about the assassination plot. He knew about the previous one. But let's assume that he knew it was at least a probability. And we don't know for certain how much he saw this as a way to achieve God's plan for him to go to Rome. But we'll come back to that later because that is inevitably what it does. But what I want us to see is how God sovereignly used this right-wrong decision to save Paul's life. Again, if he had not done this, we will see at the end of the story that Paul would have been set free. But if he would have been set free at this moment in time, he would have been murdered. And so actually the safest thing for him was to be under Roman arrest. Now again, how conscious Paul was of that, we don't know for sure. But what we need to see is that God used that decision to save his life. Throughout these later chapters of Acts, we cannot help but see the great sovereign providence of God protecting, providing for his people. And God is sovereign over all things even the Roman Empire. God has a plan for Paul to preach to Rome, and here he uses this appeal to Caesar to save Paul's 
life. Now, in addition to saving Paul's life, we're going to see in chapter 25, verse 13, to 26, verse 29, that this right-wrong decision gave Paul a present ministry platform. This, again, wrong decision will give Paul an opportunity to preach the gospel to a good amount of people, but also to some powerful people. So let's look at that. Let's begin in verses 13 to 22. So in these verses, we learn about King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, that they arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus, verse 13. Festus tells Agrippa about Paul and his case to get some advice. Festus lays out why this is a difficult case for him to adjudicate. Let me list you. This is found in verses 14 to 21. First of all, Paul was a prisoner left by Felix. So Festus is like, well, this isn't even my guy. He was left by the old guy. Secondly, the Jewish leaders are asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And thirdly, that is a problem because it is not, this is verse, um, verse 16, it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. And what's hard about the charges themselves for is that The only charges brought by the Jewish leaders in the mind of Festus were disputes about religion and about whether or not Jesus is dead or alive, and Festus does not know how to adjudicate Jewish religious disputes. And finally, on top of that, Paul appealed to Caesar, throwing another wrench in Festus's work. So what do they do in verses 23 to 27? They hold another trial. And this time, it's Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. So look at verse 23 with me. So then on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Verse 25, Festus admits to the crowd gathered there that he has found that Paul has done nothing deserving death and that he has appealed to the emperor. And here he explicitly says the problem. Festus doesn't know what to do because Festus needs to give a report to Caesar of why he's sending Paul there. And verse 26 tells us, but I have nothing to write my Lord about him. Again, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of that culture. Okay, this is not modern democracy here. Okay, you don't send somebody to Caesar without a good note explaining why you're wasting Caesar's time. Never a good idea to waste the time of a Caesar. And so at verse 26, Agrippa is going to help him, quote, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. This sets up another time 
where because of the legal system and his appeal to Caesar, Paul will get to share the gospel with everybody gathered there. Paul will take some time to defend himself as we have seen, and he will do so again. But Paul takes advantage of this experience of all the people gathered in that courtroom, all the servants, all the advisors, but also speaking to some of the most powerful people in that area. And we see God using his wrong decision to appeal to Caesar to give him an opportunity to speak the gospel in the public halls of that country. So we see in verses 1 to 11, Paul begins again with his testimony. Paul tells Agrippa that he and his life are known to the Jews who are now accusing him. Verse 5 says this, They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now remember, another thing that Paul is doing here that we sort of miss is trying to keep that connection between Christianity and Judaism. That it's not a separate religion, but that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. And that to be a true Jew before God is to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah. And he says in verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He also recalls in this section his part in the persecution of Christians, including imprisonment and death under the authority of the chief priests. He says in verse 11, In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And it raises the question, and hopefully it raised the question for Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and all those gathered, how do you turn from a zealous persecutor to a missionary? And as we've seen before in Paul's telling of this story, we see that what changed is a confrontation with the risen Jesus. So we look at verses 12 to 18. Some of this is the same as when he's told it before, but as I'll show you in a little bit, there's some other details we don't have in the other tellings of this story. But he, Paul tells how Jesus appeared to him in a light from heaven. And he asks Paul, Why are you persecuting me? Look at verse 14 with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is one of the distinct details in this telling of the story. That Jesus is, asked, Jesus is telling him, you are kicking hard against the goads. First of all, what's a goad? A goad is a sharp stick used to prod or direct an animal. What is Jesus saying to Paul here? You are a stubborn mule for not believing. So Jesus appears to Paul, calls him out for his lack of faith, But immediately in verse 16, 
we see his call to be a servant and witness for Jesus. Again, we've talked about this before, of how Paul's conversion and his call to be a missionary are so interlocked. And it's helpful for us to see that being a missionary to the place God has called us is not just for the super spiritual. And it's not just for the people who go to other countries. You don't have to travel like Paul did to be a missionary. Paul traveled across countries and boundaries on ships and horses. God is calling you across the street to your neighbor or across the dinner table to one of your family members. But all of us, like Paul, when we come to faith in Christ, become missionaries to our world, just like Paul. We'll look at verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul will, in fact, be a servant and witness to Jesus. And that is how a religious persecutor becomes a missionary. I also want us to look at verse 17 here. Jesus speaking to Paul said, "...delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles." to whom I am sending you. It is strange to put those two ideas right next to each other. But what we see here is God promising to be with Paul when the very people to whom he is sent attack him. And in verse 17, we see a promise to deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles, to deliver you from the very mission field from which you are sent. It helps us to understand the hostility that Paul had faced and will face. It also helps us understand that just because we interact with a hostile world does not mean we are also not sent to that world. It is an incredible tension to understand that we must trust God to protect us and provide for us from a hostile world, but yet never lose our heart that that is in fact the mission field, that we are sent to the ones that we might need protection from. Verse 18 helps us to see what Paul is going to do, the content of his ministry, and helps us understand our own content. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What do we do when we share the gospel with somebody? What are we doing when we share the good news of Jesus with someone? We are speaking to them that their eyes would be open, that they would turn in repentance from darkness to the marvelous light of God, from the power of Satan to God, 
and that those who repent and believe would receive forgiveness and become the sanctified people of God. Just as that is Paul's ministry, so it is ours. We preach the good news of Jesus who died and rose again so that rebellious sinners against a holy God can be forgiven and sanctified and reconciled and have the hope of eternal life. Paul in verses 19 to 23 underscores to the court that he is, in fact, telling the truth. So in verse 20, Paul tells Agrippa that he was obedient to Jesus and taught the Jews and Gentiles that they should, quote, should repent and turn to God. Here he also stands on his claims of innocence. So verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, not because he stirred up the crowd. And Paul's only crime is, remember we talked about this before, here's what I'm guilty of when it wasn't actually anything to be guilty of. Here's Paul's crime, verse 22 and 23. I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ might, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's only crime is that he tells people that the promised Savior died and rose again so that all people, Jew and Gentile, who repent of their sins and trust in him will be saved. Again, that we would live such a life that our only crime (laughs) would be that we tell people, great and small, Jew and Gentile, about Jesus. It's at this point in the story that Paul is, in in a sense, done with his main defense of his Christianity. And it focuses on the interaction between these rulers and Paul. So in verse 24, Festus calls Paul crazy. Verse 24 says, Great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul, in verses 27 through 29, directly addresses Agrippa, saying this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Here, Paul calls all of those hearing him, even these high-ranking officials, to believe in Jesus. I want to use this moment to highlight the love that Paul has for unbelievers. His willingness to share the gospel with all people follows the heart of God. I want to connect this to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, which says this, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
By the way, in 1 Timothy, this verse comes right after the verses about praying for the kings that are in authority over you. And I want to take that idea that Paul's willingness, Paul's desire to share the gospel with Agrippa in particular. Because when I tell you about him, I want you to come to the same conclusion I had. That we need to share the gospel even with this guy? Let me tell you about Agrippa. First of all, his full name, which might sound a little more familiar to you, is Herod Agrippa II. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one recorded in Matthew chapter 2 who tried to kill baby Jesus and all of the other babies in Bethlehem at that time. That's not only his great-grandfather, he is the son of Herod Agrippa I. That guy was struck dead by an angel of the Lord. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 12. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So that's this guy's family. Let me read you some more. He had two sisters, Bernice, who we met here, and Drusilla. If you remember, Drusilla was married to the former governor, Felix, that we met in Acts chapter 24. Let me tell you about Bernice and Agrippa. Texts outside of the Bible, history texts outside the Bible, tell us that it was likely that they were in fact incestuous partners. And that Bernice would later become mistress to the emperors Vespasian and Titus. These are not good people. These are very sinful and wicked people. I bring this up for two reasons. Number one, it shows how unjust this trial is. Paul is completely innocent, and he is being judged by completely wicked people. As one author writes, there is irony in having such a couple sit in judgment on Paul, who, as Luke makes clear, is innocent. This is a world turned upside down. But secondly, it shows the true commitment of Paul to the mission of Jesus. It would be easy to think that preaching to these people is not worth more than two years of unjust imprisonment. It speaks to Paul's missionary heart that he will endure so long to speak the gospel even to these people. God is calling us to preach the gospel to all people. We must follow Paul as he follows God in desiring for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The third part of our story wraps up in verses 30 to 32. So this right-wrong decision of Paul not only saved his life, gave him a present platform for his ministry, we also see that it moved Paul to future ministry. So in this section, Agrippa, Bernice, and Felix speak alone together and cannot deny the innocence 
of Paul. And here we come back to the verse with which we began, verse 32. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. If Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he would have been set free. And from their perspective, Paul made the wrong decision. But I don't think Paul regretted it at all. First of all, Paul's freedom wasn't his highest good. His highest good was doing what God called him to do. It is likely that at least in part he saw this as protecting his life as we saw earlier, but also as a way to get to Rome to preach, as he just did, but to Caesar himself. I also want to highlight the faith that Paul demonstrates in God in this decision. It might be easy for us to think that appealing to Caesar was just the natural thing to do. But it really wasn't. First of all, this was still a time in world history where kings and rulers had almost absolute power over people. If a Caesar didn't like you, he could kill you. There were no guarantees of true justice. And there's also nothing about that time that would suggest Caesar would be sympathetic to Christians. In fact, we know from study that the events here described probably happened around the year 60 AD, which would mean that the Roman emperor at that time was a guy named Nero. History tells us that while Nero's early reign enjoyed a relatively tranquil period, we also know from history that in 64 AD, Nero tried to blame Christians for the huge fire that almost destroyed Rome. A man who would probably about four years later try to pin a tragedy on Christians is the one to whom this Christian is appealing. In fact, church history tells us that Paul was eventually martyred during the reign of Nero. Now, Paul did not know what Nero was going to do in the future, but I think that this brief sketch about Nero helps you to see that his faith was not in Caesar or the Roman legal system, but in God. We see here Paul trusting God as he tried to live his life as a faithful servant and witness. And in the final two chapters of Acts, 27 and 28, we see that God will use this appeal to Caesar to bring Paul to Rome, where he can fulfill what God called him to do of preaching the gospel in Rome. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. And I want to just quickly go back to the story I told you about my guidance counselor. I have no problem with the advice given to me by that guidance counselor. And in some ways, he was right, just as Agrippa and Festus were right about Paul's decision keeping him in chains. But I want you to see God's work in Paul's life, how he used that decision 
to direct Paul into what he wanted Paul to do. And we see that in a couple ways. Number one, freedom from prison was not the highest priority for Paul. I think one of the reasons that Paul appealed to Caesar was because it was not just about gaining back his freedom. The spread of the gospel was more important to Paul. He put more of his energy into speaking the gospel to the court than trying to convince them to let him go. There are many important issues and aspects of your life, but Jesus always needs to be the most important. Secondly, we see here both deliverance and sending. In that verse full of tension in verse 17 of of promise for protection from, but also the acknowledgement of being sent to. We, like Paul, are servants and witnesses. God promises to deliver us and protect us from opponents of the gospel, but he also tells us here that those are the same people to whom we are sent. Paul is preaching to the same people that he needs God's protection from. We are called to witness to a world that is often against Jesus and his gospel and his church. Thirdly, God had plans for present and future ministry for Paul. God used this decision in his sovereignty to save Paul's life, to give him an opportunity to speak to a king about Jesus, and to move him to future gospel ministry in Rome. God is sovereign over your life. He has plans for you to minister to others through service and sharing the gospel in the present. He has plans for you to minister to others in the future. This is what moves us and drives us. I'll close with this. The government officials were so confused about Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar. But we see in this story and in the rest of Paul's story that God was at work in Paul's life. He used this decision to save Paul's life, to give him ministry opportunities, and to provide for him to go where God was calling him. When we make decisions that unbelievers don't understand, we can have confidence knowing that God will use those decisions to provide for us, to put us in a place to minister to others, and to move us to where he has called us. And in those times, we are to trust God in his sovereignty over our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these chapters of your word that show us your sovereignty, that you protected the life of Paul, that you gave him an opportunity to speak to the rulers of his time, and that you, in your sovereignty, used the Roman legal system to bring Paul to where he was to preach the gospel where you had called him. God, that as we are missionaries to our world, that we would trust in your sovereignty to provide for us, that we would take the opportunities you give us today to share the good news of Jesus, and that we would trust that you are moving us to where you need us to be, where you are calling us to be in the future, trusting in your provision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.